You're listening to a Thames Estuary Partnership podcast, celebrating London's famous tidal river. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Eve Sanders and welcome back to Talk of the Thames. Now today is a rather special episode as it was recorded on site during one of the Estuary Edges fish surveys back in August. Now, what are the estuary edges? I hear you cry. Well, allow me to explain. So estuary edges are intertidal reed beds and habitat, which has been implemented by waterside developers along the Thames. It's a series of guidance which explains in detail how to create these sites and the ways in which they can benefit both people and wildlife. Over the last three years, it's been my job to go and survey these sites and to get a better picture of how they're functioning for biodiversity. Now, the following is a recording of us at Point Wharf Estuary Edge site, which is positioned just outside of the O2 arena. We were setting and hauling in the seine nets, and we also laid some fike nets on the intertidal terraces. So a seine net, essentially you, you put it in the water and it's got a weighted bottom to it, and you walk in a big circle or you use a boat if you're perhaps a little deeper, and you, you sort of swoop the net in and then you haul it onto the shore and, and look at your catch. Whereas a fike net is more of a funnel with big wings either side. So the, when the tide comes in, the fish get trapped essentially in the end of these uh, fike nets and then you recover the nets at low tide again. But no fish are harmed in this process. They're all placed in aerated buckets and once processed are quickly uh, put back into the Thames. Come with us on our surveying journey at Point Wharf. We've got something in there. It's difficult when it's surging like that with the... Oh, we've got an eel. <laughs> so we've hauled in the final seine net and we're now, uh, we have the fish in a bucket and ready to process. So what we'll do is we'll take the fish out one at a time, check them over, measure them and record this information. The fish are in aerated buckets so they can breathe and they get released shortly after, so no fish are harmed in the process. Now, what have we got here? Oh, now it's in some freshwater fish, an eel, a stickleback, a bass, a nice bass. Well, there's a good mix for you. Uh, that's, that's last year's. You can just hold that a minute. I'll yeah. get it. I'll get in there. These are tiny little uh, roach or dace. That is definitely a little bass. That's another tiny bass. Is that European bass? Oh yeah. Yeah. What I've demonstrated is the high freshwater point at the moment. You wouldn't have seen those little freshwater days here normally in August. That's great. Nice. So we'll do a second one straight away. Yeah. It's okay. Things about that catch. Uh, I think that's a bit of a surprise. It's last year's bass. They will come up this far, but it's quite rackish for them. I would expect it to come up this far under these conditions. But the small bass, the classic, is at least two different size classes there. 
Now they're both naught plus, but what we now know is that bass are spawning at slightly different times in slightly different places in the southern North Sea and off the French coast. So they're taking different times to get here. So what we see classically with bass is multiple groups or modes in the evidence. And they'll start in about June, about the smallest as that small one is. But by August you might have seen a third wave, sometimes a fourth. And the last latter waves hardly ever get big enough to survive the winter. I've said this to Andy before that the salt marsh is critical in this regard. Because if they can get in there and feed fast and early, it's so warm they'll grow fast until they get big enough to survive the winter. If they don't get the optimal habitat and they're part of one of the later waves of fry, they just die because it gets too cold. Unless they make about six or seven grams in weight, that's so big. They maybe say six, seven, seven or eight centimetres, they just won't survive the winter because they don't feel the feed in cold water. So the salt marsh's habitat is absolutely critical to their survival. That shows the importance then of the estuary edges site. Oh, it does, definitely. And, and also, it's also tied in with um, climate change and with um, species distributions. Because bass is naturally a warm water species, so they're already on the northern end of their distribution in the southern end of the UK. So you're only going to have a hard winter, it'll knock them out. But if they get a reasonable summer and they get really good habitat, then more of them survive a hard winter. So yes, this habitat's absolutely critical. Something's grabbed the end of that, so So the first batch of fish is just a fish from the <coughs> little pond on that. Call it, we'll call it the third terrace. Call it this one first, second, third, just for this purpose. Yeah. yeah. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. So if I could just call it pond. Yeah. Yeah. yeah bay, pond. bay three pond. Bay three. Be great. Get out. Another one of these. So we've got both operating. This is where you realise how bad my name Really more small fish in there again. Oh, now you see, there is, there is a, that's definitely a baby common goby. And he is only 15 millimetre long. You can tell by the way he's moving, and I can see the melanophores in the body through. Uh, and you can see a line of a darker spots or shades of melanophores down one side of him. Right. Oh, I yeah, could. I can see that. I yeah. can see that. Yeah. We say 15. <laughs> so transparent. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, there, there are other tools you can put it in. Biologists have those little jars with a magnifying glass on the top, but I find this. And if it's just a small thing, you've seen these before, you haven't done it. Just a simple jam jar. If you haven't got one of those, you put your little fish in here and watch them swimming around. Because you're better to be able to identify them if you're looking at them like that rather than like that. And, and then the we've other got, are you counting shrimp? No, I'm not counting, I'm just going to say they're, they're common basically. They're common shrimp, many. Yeah, well, there's, there's various species in here. There's something called a euphorcid, which I'm quite familiar with, which is a very small shrimp-like animal. There's some baby krangon. There might be something else as well, but we just say they're present. Anyway, that's, oh, that's the one that's going back, isn't it? That's a, a 15 mil common goby, which, again, is, that's what interests me. In my experience, common gobies are coming in from June onwards at about 10 mil. So that's only 15. Does that mean that there's another wave of them that's coming? Or does it mean that the 
it's a single wave of them and they've come through later than they would do normally. Um, now I'm guessing from its body shape it's a goby again but it's only 12 mil. So he hasn't grown very much at all yet. This is quite this magnifying glass on this is actually quite clear, isn't it? I haven't used it quite like this before. It's quite good now, again you can see the melanophores on the body. But that one there is a dead common goby at 12 mil. Okay. At least that's my best guess. And what I mean by that is you'd have to take that back into the laboratory mm. under a microscope to be absolutely clear. But given what we expect to see here and what we know about the ecology and the timing of animals coming, that is highly likely to be a common goby. more interesting is, is how small some of them are. Two gobies. One goby at <coughs> 24 and one at 18. Quite nice little gobies. And I'm calling these all common gobies but where we are now we're on the edge of where you might start to see the sand goby. But even at this tiny size, it looks slightly different. It's got a slightly longer face. It tends to be slightly more... The, the, the colour melanophores are not black, they're more orange. So if you've seen a lot of them, you can get a good indication. But again, if they're under two centimetres in size, yeah. you can't tell. Can the sand goby wants slightly more salt in the water, so it's, it's, it's a bit fresh for it up here. Is there a difference in the eyes as well? Yes. Yeah. Common is and, if, and if you turn them upside down, there's a difference in the... Um, Oh, the fins are sort of linked together across the bottom uh, in a different way in the two species. But they, they overlap heavily at the time. Yeah, common goby at 12. And again, small as he is, you can see the, the, colour, the colours down the side of the animal. Nothing the else spots. looks quite like that. Like freckles. Yes, like freckles, exactly. They Just like freckles. Quite red eyes. That's right. Yeah. You can have red eyes at times. But see his behaviours, he wants to sit on the bottom. He will swim up. Yeah. But it's not like a bass or something which just stays in mid-water. He wants to go and hide on the bottom. Right, come and go be at uh, 26. And then now with him, just, just to show the difference, are two Krangon. They're quite big. <coughs> So you can see they do, they're not like a shrimp. They don't crawl, they crawl along the bottom. Much more flattened. A prawn will swim in mid-water. Prawns and shrimps are often part of the same fishery. Okay. The prawns we get in the Thames, um, the estuarine prawn, can get about so big, get about, about 10 centimetres long. And they're very pretty in the aquarium because they're transparent. You can see all the blood vessels inside them so that you can see right through them and see all the body organs. They're really quite pretty animals. You can see how much life there is in there with the, the small animals scooting around. They seem to be all cranged on this, but much smaller ones. But again, you can see they're not trying to swim in mid-water, they just swim around the bottom all the time. Oh, there's lots in there? Yeah, yeah. but there's lots of small ones, so they're obviously breeding somewhere. Not too far away. There's a little, like, woodlouse yeah. thing as well. What's that? Yeah, it can be a woodlouse. Well, a woodlouse related. It could be cellus or could be gamorous, one of the two.
common goby again, 12 millimeter instead. But swimming around actively in there is a sort of laterally compressed shrimp that's buzzing around in the water. Where are you? Where's he gone there? That thing there, that slightly browner thing. Yeah. That's a gamorous, which you find in fresh waters. They're, they're very, very um, common in fresh waters, but they will exist in slightly, slightly saline conditions. Right. Maybe a different species, but they're very, very common in freshwater reaches. So not quite estuarine then, more, no, no. more rivers and... Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, there's nothing... They will survive in these conditions. Yeah. Right, so that was... Those are all the fish in that little pond. pond. And so if you draw a line under that... This year's bass fry. And this one is... Oh, he's quite... He's come round quite nicely. 24 mil and the thing to notice with this is he hasn't yet fully scaled can you see along the top surface and the ventral surface like a black edge it's really noticeable when they're smaller than that um, and they could sometimes have a pinkish line um, just behind the head and you think what on earth am I looking at because it doesn't look like a bass it's not a bar of silver at all um, and again one reason for looking at them like this is that if he stops moving, you can see he's got two dorsal fins, which means he's a perkid, uh, a member of the perch family. So it can only be, only be the perch, Xander, or a, or a bass. Oh, right, okay. So looking at the body shape and the fin sizes is really important. But he's quite a good example of this. He's, he's nearly fully scaled up, but not quite yet. And he's still got that black edge to him. So if you see from above, the head's quite black. Yeah. The tail's quite black. You wouldn't think it's a baby sea bass at all. So it's lost their markings from the top and bottom. Now here's a nice thing, because these are two different species that you might think look the same. Ooh, that's for saying that. Now they've got me confused. In the Thames, we have a hybrid called a roach bream hybrid, and I've got one and possibly two here. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, roach have a red eye, bream are deeper in the body. The, these two could, but one looks like a true bream, and the other one looks roach shaped, but it hasn't got a red eye. So Interesting. <laughs> um, so I'm saying the bream is uh, 42 millimetres. And this probably roach bream hybrid is 35. If you look at those two, they've got a slightly different body shape. This one I'm saying is the bream, a true bream. They get very deep bodied when they get bigger. You see, yeah. it's already a bit deeper in the body than the other one. Yeah. But if that's a true roach, you should have a red eye. And he hasn't. They just have to confuse you, these damn fish. <laughs> but again, freshwater species, they're at the top end, sorry, the bottom end of their distribution here because they started to hit the salinity, they won't go any further downstream. So this is where they, this is as far down as they'll come? Yeah, on, on this particular tidal regime. To be another. Very similar to the last ones. Yeah. I'm going to put that down as a true roach because it's got a bit of a, a gleam in its eye. It's slightly red. So I'm saying roach at uh, 32 millimeter, but it's, it could be again another one of these hybrids. They're really difficult these to do. 
Oh no, he's a classic. No, he's not. Here's an even smaller bass. Hang on a minute. Now that's what I meant. He might not survive, but that's a baby bass. See what I mean? It doesn't, it doesn't look like a bass at all. No. You can see the black edging. It's not quite as prominent as that other one. But it's got the two dorsal fins. Yes, fins. you can see the two dorsal fins. And he's still pumping, so I'm getting back in some, some aeration. Yeah, yeah. But he's, um, yes, 20, 20 mil. And he won't have been in very long, and he's probably no more than, uh, he's, he's probably certainly no more than three months old. Let's just see. Hold the net so I don't lose the eel, otherwise we'll be trying to catch him all day. <laughs> Go on, Mr. Bass, yes, you'll just about do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, four, five. Let's turn him upside. Let him look the right way, shall we? You beauty. <laughs> he's sticking his fins out because he's annoyed with us. Oh, I'm not surprised. Oh, wow. That's last that year's. Out? That's last year's. Um, and again, they don't come too far into the estuary. Uh, they'll come to Wool um, Abbey Wood uh, and Woolwich a lot. And I'm surprised to see him quite this far up, but it's not its not horribly unusual. But it does show you, even a second year bash will come into two parts per thousand, very low salinity area. Obviously in very good condition, feeding on all the small fish you can get hold of. Is that okay? He looks in good neck as well. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Shall I put him back? in too much water because he'll start climbing out. Gone. But he's okay to do this with. Go on, that's it. Uh, my favourite. <laughs> Again, eels are good because if you put them into a V-shape, they tend to, after moving around a bit, they tend to just lie down flat. So, yes, uh, one. This Go on, they'll just lie down. Yes, oh yeah. Uh, one, one, two, five, I'm calling that. Oh, look at the boat going up the river now. There's a sight. Look at that. Turn around the other way, go around the other way. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Let's lie down a minute. Thank you. Yes, one, two, five, I'm calling that. One, two, five. So, uh, that is probably last year's Elva. So, rather like the bass, he's in his second year in the river. Um, good little Elva. Or yellow eel, as he is properly now. Oh, we've got a ladybird on me. Uh, but again, it's, it, this is such an easy way to process them, rather than to try and stick him on a measuring board where he flaps all over the place yeah, trying to hold yeah. him. So much easier. I found this before when you get huge volumes of debris. You don't catch very many fish. Oh, yes. That is a true dace. There are little fish stuck in the rubbish not many. There could be tiny fry stuck in here, of course. I shouldn't be doing this without my gloves on, it's a bit silly. Gamerals. So this is our third seine net, and we haven't been so lucky with fish, but we have caught quite a horrendous amount of plastic and a syringe, lolly sticks, a tennis ball, some old chocolate wrappers. It's a little bit sad. 
You can also say that the seine netting is difficult because it's so choppy. Yeah. Um, which is often to do with the number of boats passing us here. It's interesting the amount of debris in this third net is so much greater than the first net. First net, because of the tide. Yeah. Like lifting it up and moving it around. Exactly. Oh well, that's good. Nice. Didn't catch many fish, but again, we've got a what looks like a true roach and a two a true uh, dace this time. Special thanks to fisheries expert Steve Colcloth, who was leading the surveys today. We always have a lot of fun out on the survey days, and it never fails to impress me the sheer diversity of life at these sites. It's not just fish, but when you're there on site for the day, you see such a range of birds and invertebrates using the sites. It's lovely, and all of this builds towards the fact that the Thames is really thriving and full of life. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Talk of the Thames and feel inspired to get out and look for these wildlife hotspots. Hopefully it's given you a little more appreciation for the species hiding beneath the city. Until next month, take care. Bye bye. <laughs>